Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kellen McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Amy Randall to the show. Amy is an Isidorian at Santa Clara University and is the editor of a wonderful new collection of essays titled Genocide and Gender in the 20th Century, a Comparative Survey. Whenever I start reading a book that I'm planning on doing an interview for, I'm, I, I always start by reading the blurbs on the back cover of the book. And on Amy's, Dirk Moses, a uh, historian or, and, and, and scholar in genocide studies, Dirk Moses writes that gender and genocide in the 20th century is, quote, the volume for which the field has been waiting, unquote. That a field so interdisciplinary as genocide studies should be waiting for a volume about gender is a fascinating observation. The book deals with this disciplinary question at length, but it does so in the context of a series of wonderful essays essays that ask specific questions about specific genocides. And so you get both a broad discussion of methodology as well as detailed treatment of individual case studies. It's a really excellent book, one that I'm already planning on using the next time I teach comparative genocide. And I'm really looking forward to having a chance to talk with Amy about the book. So with that, Amy, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books in Genocide Studies. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of this series. I'm, I'm really happy to contribute to it. So we always start, Amy, um, by inviting our guests to say something about their backgrounds and, and how they came to be um, an academic. So, so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you ended up becoming a historian. Yeah, so um, I was interested in Russian literature and the Russian Revolution in high school. So when I went to college, I pursued Soviet studies. Uh, and as a part of that, I traveled to the Soviet Union in 1987. And this was a very exciting time. It was when Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev was promoting perestroika, restructuring, and, and glasnost, what translated as greater openness, um, in an effort to save the Soviet system. And it was a very exciting time, as I said, because Soviet people, they were actually debating their past, present, and future um, in newspapers, on the corners, uh, in you know, work centers, um, in community spaces, very interesting. Uh, and being there made me want to know even more about the history of the Russian Revolution and the Soviet Union. Uh, and eventually my interest in Russian and Soviet history and in women's and gender studies and my interest in the life of academia led me to Princeton University where I received a master's and PhD in history. So your first book is actually History of, of Consumerism in, in the Soviet Union. How did you move from becoming a historian of Russia and the Soviet Union to becoming interested in gender and genocide? A really good question, and it might seem strange to listeners that I that I made that trajectory in terms of my career. Uh, but uh, my early work on Soviet history always involved uh, gender analysis, uh, and then personally, as a feminist and a Jew, I've I've always been interested, or I should say I've long been interested in gender issues in the Holocaust, and this was true even when I was a girl. 
as I grew older, I began to learn about other genocides in school. Uh, so I learned about the Cambodian genocide. And then when I was in graduate school, uh, it was the early 1990s and mid-1990s, genocidal violence began to unfold in the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda. Um, and this violence quite clearly went beyond the targeting of a group for elimination because it included widespread rape and sexual violence. So it really underscored to me the importance of looking at gender, genocide. And then I began to teach about the Holocaust as a professor. And as I did so, I learned a lot more about its complexities. And in the process, I came to understand how ideas about gender played a central role in its unfolding and its details. So uh, as I began to read more and teach about ethnic cleansing and genocide in the 20th century, and I made that move. I um, produced a course that I've been teaching for several years now. I also saw that gender uh, informed genocidal processes in the cases that we were discussing in the class. So that's how I went from Russian Soviet history to gender and genocide. So I think you and I are, are we're in graduate school at roughly the same time. Um, and I had a kind of similar experience as starting, uh, at least at the beginning of my career, thinking of myself as a Habsburg historian and then watching the areas that I studied descend into violence and chaos. Um, I'm wondering, most graduate students are focused on their research and on getting a job. How much did that impact the way you thought about what a historian in the modern world should do about to the extent to which teaching history or researching history was actually about influencing the present. Did that make any difference to you or not? Um, it did, although I, I initially didn't feel that my writing and research on the Soviet Union uh, contributed much to uh, thinking about the present, uh, only in the sort of more academic sense of um, intervening in certain academic debates and so on. But I I wanted to have my teaching and my research more connected to present-day issues. And that is certainly part of what um, fostered my interest in doing a volume yeah. because it seemed to me that such a volume and in my teaching, it was imperative for me personally, and it sounds like for you as well, yeah. um, to have that teaching and that research be really relevant and to shape how people thought about certain issues today and in terms of gender and genocide how people would be evaluating what was going on around them but also uh, in the recent past what had happened um, and so I did really see connection or want to push that connection even more mm -hmm. between the past and the present uh, in my uh, teaching and research. Well, let's turn to the book um, and and you hinted at this a little bit, but but I, let's explore it further because I'm I'm interested in how this book came together. It's a, it's a wonderful anthology. How did you, as a Soviet historian, what are the how did the practicalities of how this book came together? Well, it, it goes back to my teaching. So when I began to teach that class on ethnic cleansing and genocide, um, I guess I you know entered into um, the world of different publishers and somehow I appeared on their databases or something. <laughs> so I received a questionnaire about the Holocaust and genocide from Bloomsbury Press. Um, and the questionnaire asked me to comment on what aspects of the study of the Holocaust and genocide would be most useful um, 
to pursue and what topics could be expanded upon. And in that, I proposed that a collection on gender and ethnic cleansing and genocide would be valuable. And ultimately, I came to produce such a book. That's kind of amazing. Uh, It's well worth it. Uh, And as you did, um, one of the things that I find interested in is is the editorial choices you made. And particularly, um, you decided to focus on a few case studies rather than of, of individual genocides, rather than try and be comprehensive in terms of the, the number of genocides you looked at. Why did you make that decision? I made that decision because I wanted to have a detailed examination of gender and different cases of genocide. Um, so I wanted depth instead of breadth in terms of the, the shaping of the book. And I focused uh, primarily on four main cases uh, in terms of the solicitors or the contributors that I, uh, in terms of the contributors I tried to locate. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Armenian genocide, the Holocaust, the ethnic cleansing and genocide in Bosnia, and the Rwandan genocide. Um, that was my sort of focus as the editor, although some of the individual contributors talk about other genocides. But I did that because these examples, these cases, they, they more or less fit the legal definition of genocide that was adopted by the UN Convention. And so I think it provides a useful framework for comparison, despite what I see and many others see as the limit of that UN definition. But another reason that I selected these four cases is that there is a growing scholarship on gender and these particular genocides. Mm -hmm. So there is some academic attention to the plight of women in Bangladesh, the Bangladesh genocide of 1971, and also in the case of the more recent uh, Darfur genocide, But gender scholarship on other examples of 20th century genocidal violence is much more limited. Um, Although I should note, there's a new book out on forced marriages in Cambodia that just came out in 2014. Hmm. That's kind of interesting. But my goal was for the volumes chapters to be in dialogue not only with each other, but other scholarship. I thought that would be very useful for people looking at gender and genocide. So you've written a really nice introduction, uh, which which looks at um, the issue of why it took so long for gender to receive uh, attention in genocide studies, and and it actually recurs repeatedly uh, in in the essays in the volume, and, and so maybe we should start with a question of why did it take so long. Yeah, it shouldn't have taken so long, but yes, it did. And um, it took a long time because um, there was a lot of resistance on the part of scholars to taking gender seriously. Um, And it really was the feminist scholars of the Holocaust who first promoted research and writing about women, gender, and the Holocaust in the late 70s and early 80s. And they met with this resistance um, their scholarship was ignored or greeted with hostility by many academics and others. And from the perspective of the critics of this approach, I guess it seemed that um, un- it seemed unimportant that women had particular experiences as women, hmm. given that all Jews, whether male or female, right, were subject to the murderous anti-Semitism of the Nazi regime drawing attention to gender and women's experiences, some feared would trivialize the Holocaust. 
or some even argue that it would politicize the Holocaust by subjecting it to a feminist agenda. Uh, and other people worried that this scholarship would promote a kind of comparative victimhood, right? So, for example, the idea mm-hmm. that people would make arguments that women had it worse than men during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it's important to keep in mind that some of this resistance is, needs to be understood in the broader context in academia of resistance to women's history and women's studies and the study of gender. So the first generation of feminist scholars of the Holocaust, um, they kept at their research and they made a compelling case for why women's voices and experience and gender as a framework for analysis, why it needed to be incorporated into the study of the Holocaust. Um, and scholars who studied the Armenian genocide, um, partly because of the dialogue between some of the scholars involved in both studies of the Holocaust and the Armenian genocide, but they also began to address gender issues in their research. Uh, I think the genocidal violence in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia in the yeah. 1990s, so that really drove home the importance of using gender as a lens for analysis. So that's when we see a real proliferation of scholarship on gender and genocide. Um, you mentioned the issue of definition a, a few moments ago. Um, how, how does consideration of gender, how it does or how should or how might consideration of gender impact our sense of how genocide should be defined? Yeah, I think that um, it, it can help us to identify cases of genocide. Um, and. You know, the study of gender can just help us in general understand genocide better. So not only the definition, but the causes of genocide, the processes, the aftermath. Uh, It sheds light on how discourses of femininity and masculinity, gender norms, understandings of female and male identities, um, have contributed to victims' experiences to and responses, experiences of and responses to genocidal violence, as well as perpetrators' motivations for and tactics of destroying another group. Gender analysis sheds light on how gender dy- the gender dynamics that organize the economic, political, social, and familial spheres within perpetrator and victim societies, um, how those dynamics contribute to the unfolding of genocide. Uh, it sheds light on the powerful deployment of gender in propaganda during a case of genocide. It sheds light on how gender norms can shape the aftermath to genocide. For example, uh, if we think about international responses to conflict and, and so much more. So I think it contributes to how we identify and define genocide, but also you know, how we understand um, the genocidal processes in, in more detail. One of the names that keeps coming up uh, in these interviews that I do um, about the definition of genocide, and it makes sense, uh, is Raphael Lemkin, who is the uh, person who was most important in pushing through the passing of the UN Convention on the Pre- Prevention and Punishment of Genocide. As Lemkin tried to get the international community to adopt the Genocide Convention, did he consider gender? Well, he didn't explicitly consider gender, but he did something important in his definition of genocide because he argued that it was more than mass murder. And in his opinion, non-lethal techniques of destruction could be deemed genocidal insofar as they were part of a broader coordinated plan to eradicate a national group. Um, 
he argues that these non-lethal techniques could include techniques aimed at the, quote, destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the groups themselves, Mm -hmm. unquote. And so in my view, that is speaking to gender, um, the essential foundations of the life of national groups. And what do I mean? I guess that could be confusing to some listeners. So for me, it speaks about gender because if we think about, for example, sexual violence against women, it's a strategy for destroying not only individual female members of a group, but also for destroying the essential foundations of the life of national groups, according you know, to Lemkin's definition, because it can devastate women's ability to pursue group reproduction, and that's you know, biological as well as cultural. By causing physical and emotional damage, it can tear families and communities apart when they're forced to watch or participate in the sexual violence. So even though Lemkin didn't explicitly address gender, I think he was speaking about gender when he talked about these non-lethal techniques of destruction. And ultimately, um, the UN definition uh, that was adopted also did not explicitly address gender, but it did nod to these uh, non-lethal techniques of destruction that Lemkin talked about. It did nod to the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups because the definition that was adopted talked about, um, in terms of acts that could count as genocide, talked about, quote, measures intended to prevent births within the group, end quote, unquote, and the forcible transfer of children from the targeted group to another group. And so to me, that again nods to what Lemkin was trying to get at in terms of these non-lethal techniques and again speaks to gender, not explicitly, but it does speak to gender. Yeah. I think probably for many listeners, when they hear that we're talking about gender and genocide, their first thought is going to be about sexual violence and rape. And, and you mentioned this briefly a moment ago. So, so how did rape and sexual violence become legally qualified as genocide? They became legally qualified as genocide in 1998 and, and long after this UN Convention on Genocide was adopted in 1948. Um, and it was, uh, the change came about in response to the genocidal violence in Rwanda, in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, two international courts were established by the UN Security Council, uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, as well as the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. So as these courts began to try cases, um, in 1998, the ICTR convicted a man by the uh, name of John Paul Akayesu, who was the mayor of Taba commune or Taba region in Rwanda. And he was convicted of crimes against humanity and genocide, including genocidal acts of rape and sexual violence. This was a huge deal because it was the, the first time that international law recognized that sexual violence and rape could constitute acts of genocide. Um, and they argued it did so by causing serious bodily and mental harm to women, mm-hmm. their families and their communities with the intent to destroy in whole or in part, and that's part of the UN definition in whole or in part, destroy a particular group. So in other words, 
acts of sexual violence and rapes when integral to the processes of destruction could be deemed genocidal. As I said, this is a huge change in terms of international law, and the ICTY also uh, came to the conclusion in one of its cases that rape could be recognized as a crime against humanity. So, you know, in a, a case in 2001, basically the ICTY argued that the rapes that the accused had perpetrated were not just individual acts of violation, but crimes against humanity because they were part of a systematic and widespread uh, use of sexual violence against Bosniak women, not only in Socha, which is where the case was centered, but in Bosnia more generally. Um, and the use of this rape to promote terror and ethnic cleansing. So recognizing rape and sexual violence as crimes of genocide and crimes against humanity, this was a big, big deal. Um, and it was a real change from earlier conceptualizations of rape and sexual violence during times of violence, of war. Um, and some of these earlier con concepts um, of, of rape and sexual violence included, um, for example, the idea that these things were just incidental or just mm. uh, examples of you know, the unrestrained sexual behavior of individual men who were in battle. Um, and essentially that these were non-political acts of, of sexual dominance. Um, and so it, it really was a change to define uh, rape and sexual violence differently. Um, I should say, though, that there have been very few convictions since the decisions that were made in 1998 and 2001. Um, and that's very uh, disappointing, at least for me, and I think for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Uh, yeah, I was going to follow up on that. Um... To what extent? So, so you, you you're talking about uh, prosecutions and convictions. Uh, let me open it up a little bit more broadly and say, has has this um, judgment or or decision that that sexual violence is genocidal, has that made a difference in any consistent way in how the international community has responded? It it really hasn't. Um, again, in terms of these courts, in terms of the convictions. Um, you know, I think that if in any way it's made a difference just to take seriously, uh, more seriously, the help offered to victims of this violence in the aftermath of genocide. Uh, but again, in terms of actual justice or, um, you know, again, uh, achieving convictions, it's been very disappointing. And, and there are a few reasons for this. Um, there's been... To some extent, we could say a lack of education awareness about the existence of these courts in the countries that are involved. Um, so women not knowing about opportunities, right, to testify, seek redress. Uh, but also a lot of survivors have been reluctant to come forward and take action because there's a shame, stigma, um, sometimes, particularly in the case of Rwanda, being forced to live near one's rapist, you know, after the fact fear about the consequences of speaking out. There are also structural issues um, which have impeded indictment and conviction. And so one example that I can think of, um, I guess the ICTR employed only male investigators initially, right, in the late until the late 1990s. And a lot of rape survivors just weren't willing to talk to them. They wanted to talk to female investigators. Um, there have been procedural issues that have resulted in indictments, not, um, you know, concluding in convictions. Um, so sort of legalistic um, 
limitations of the courts and the way that you know the proceedings unfold. Um, there have also been limitations, I think, in terms of um, even the efforts at indictment um, and conviction because some victims of sexual violence haven't been recognized. So if we think about Rwanda, uh, of course, you know, Tutsi women have been recognized as victims of the sexual violence. But it turns out that a fair number of Hutu women were also subject hmm. to sexual violence. And so one of the things about these proceedings uh, is that you know, they don't recognize certain categories of victims who don't fit neatly into uh, certain narratives of, you know, the aggressor and the victim. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really unfortunate, I think. So so you talked about that, that the case studies you're, you're using are Armenia, Bosnia, Rwanda, and the Holocaust. And, and what becomes quickly apparent, at least to me, in reading the essays about the Holocaust is that it that it differed from the others, especially from Rwanda and the Holocaust in terms of sexual violence. Um, can, can you say a little bit more about maybe why and how this is? Yeah, I would say um, in both Bosnia and Rwanda, we see you know women were raped in mass, and, and we do see that uh, in the Armenian genocide as well, um, perhaps not in as systematic of a way, but nonetheless, women were raped en masse. But in the case of Bosnia and Rwanda, we're talking about tens of thousands of women in Bosnia and hundreds of thousands in, in the case of Rwanda. Um, rape and other forms of sexual violence, such as you know, nudity, sexual torture, mm-hmm. um, they were systematic and integral to the genocidal violence, and they were directed and encouraged by superiors. So, for example, in Bosnia, Serbian soldiers you know, told Bosniak women that they were raping them to punish them for being Muslim hmm. and to make them have Chetnik Serbian babies. Rape camps were set up in schools and large buildings, other venues, and women were raped repeatedly in some cases until they became pregnant. And then in many cases they were held captive until it was too late, too late to you know, get an abortion. So women were forced to birth the babies of rape and girls as well as women of all ages, you know, young and really quite elderly women were often raped in front of their families in public. And this, as I've mentioned before, was a technique for not only devastating, destroying them, but their broader community. Uh, and then many Bosniak women were raped before they were killed. And we see something, uh, some similarities in, in terms of Rwanda. You know, hundreds of thousands of Tutsi women and some Hutu women were raped by Hutu men um, in many cases before they were murdered. But many women who were not killed, and but were still raped, um, they were subject to, I mean, rape, bad, terrible crime, right? They were subject to rape as well as physical and sexual mutilation, features that were supposed to be unique, supposedly, to Tootsie women, such as thin noses and long fingers. They mm. were mutilated um, as if in response to the Hutu propaganda that, you know, Tutsi women were arrogant and disdainful of Hutu men. Uh, Tutsi women's breasts, vaginas, wombs, they were mutilated. Women were sometimes raped in particularly sadistic ways, for example, with machetes. Um, and there's also evidence that many of the Hutu rapists taunted their victims by telling them that they were infecting them with HIV, AIDS, or other sexually transmitted mm. diseases. So I think this really underscores how um, sexual violence, it, it was used as a weapon of genocide, right, in these cases. Um, 
And a significant difference between Bosnia and Rwanda and the Holocaust was that the Jewish women were not raped en masse. And there was no systematic and widespread rape of Jewish women, um, really because of um, Nazi ideology, racial ideology and policies that dictated against sexual activity between Aryan, supposedly Aryan, and non-Aryan members of society of blood. Um, So engaging in rape, according to Nazi racial laws, was racial defilement. And people who were caught doing this, non-Jewish Germans who were caught doing this, were punished. Um, But I think even though it wasn't systematic and a part of the overall genocidal plan, it is important to note that Jewish women were raped by German men, despite the laws, despite the ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be growing evidence that this happened in the killing fields of what, or what I call the killing fields of Eastern Europe, right? Mm-hmm. The beginning of you know the war against the Soviet Union, um, as the German army and other forces swept across the lands. Um, rape, you know, and, the, and they raped Jewish uh, as well as Roma, Sinti women, Slavic women. Um, so we see that, but we also see rape happening uh, at camps, in ghettos, in places of hiding. And we see other forms of sexual violence. Women were, you know, shaved, for example, when they arrived at the camps, which many understood, many women understood as a terrible sexual humiliation. They mm-hmm. were forced to undress in front of men. They were prodded, poked at, laughed at by them. Um, many women were also forced to undergo invasive body searches. So, for example, um, you know, anal and vaginal exams to ensure that they weren't hiding anything, supposedly. Mm. But this was a real violence inflicted upon them. And then Jewish women were subject to forced um, abortions, forced sterilizations and medical experiments. Um, And so, again, I think we really need to be careful to note that, yes, it was fundamentally different in the Holocaust, but that doesn't mean that Jewish women weren't affected by sexual violence in very um, significant ways. You mentioned um, impregnating Muslims with technic children, and that, that points to the next question I wanted to get at is, what, along with this kind of broad comparison of, of Bosnia and Rwanda and Holocaust, another conclusion, at least that I reached from this this particular section of the book is the importance of existing cultural understandings of, of gender in motivating sexual violence and, and, and in shaping its aftermath. Can, can you talk a little bit about that, please? Yeah, um, I think these essays really do demonstrate that, you know, historically and culturally specific understandings of, of gender, as well as the interconnectedness with um, ideas about race, ethnicity, mm-hmm. nationality, religion, and sexuality, that they Yes, they do indeed um, matter and inform sexual violence as well as its aftermath. So if we take the example of the Armenian genocide, um, it's very interesting to note that the Turks believed that Armenian women and children were malleable, um, that their identities were not blood-based, but that their identities were a result of ethnicity and culture, and therefore in uh, many Turks' views, um, they could be transformed. Armenian women and children could be transformed and become Muslims, even Turks. So even though, of course, hundreds of thousands of Armenians, including Armenian women and children, were killed, many tens of thousands of Armenian women and children were kidnapped. So they were forcibly taken and incorporated into Muslim households as 
sexual and non-sexual slaves. Um, and this was part of the genocidal plan to forcibly assimilate these people. Um, and this would result in the elimination of what we might call Armenian-ness, right? So it might seem like a strange way to pursue genocide because women and children were allowed to live, uh, but culturally specific ideas about nationality, ethnicity, religion, and so on, allowed for that kind of formulation and then therefore that kind of strategy. Um, an example of how it, you know, these historically and culturally specific understandings uh, affected the aftermath of genocide, uh, we can think about post-genocidal Bosnia, where, and this goes back to what you were saying before um, about the Chetnik Serbian babies, but the belief was that a child's ethnic identity was determined by his or her father's identity, no matter, right, the mother contributed biologically or that a mother could raise the child in a certain community, you know, ethnic community, religious community. The idea was that these children were from their father, right? And this ultimately led to the marginalization and abuse of uh, children born of rape. And there's one essay that focuses in particular on this. And what's really interesting is it wasn't just the community that rejected these babies uh, because they saw them as, as, you know, their father's babies, but even the mothers themselves considered the babies in many cases to be Serb babies. Um, so it's a very sad story. Well, you also included a section on perpetrators and, and you start this out with a, a somewhat older article by Stephen Haynes. Um, I'm wondering if you could say why, talk about why you picked that article and, and what it says about perpetrators and gender. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting story in the sense that um, for years I've been teaching uh, Christopher Browning's book. Uh, listeners mm -hmm. might know this book, Ordinary Men, Reserve Police Battalion, Final Solution in Poland. It's a really interesting book um, and it examines how it is that, you know, ordinary men, so, you know, in other words, sort of mostly middle-aged family men from Hamburg, Germany, men who were not psychologically deviant or fanatical or even overly ide ideological, um, and most of whom were not Nazi party or SS members, how it is that ordinary men like them became mass murderers in the towns of Poland. And um, so the, the article by Haynes addresses this question um, and uh, although Browning notes that, um, you know, anti-Semitism played a big role, his analysis focuses on uh, the role that peer pressure and the pressure to conform and the pressure to uh, obey orders from above, the role that these things played in the transformation of these men. Um, and what Haynes does is he uh, expands on this and he also addresses other, um, you know, other issues, but expands on this analysis to say, well, what about the role that gender played, right? Mm -hmm. And when I read Christopher Browning's book, I always wanted that additional analysis. I remember thinking, this just cries out for gender analysis. And then one day I found Haynes' article when I was trying to find possible contributors to the volume. And I was so excited um, to find it. Here it was. It was already written. Someone had already mm -hmm. done this analysis. And so I, I, I contacted him and asked him if, if he'd be willing to contribute this older piece. Um, and I think what's interesting about Haynes' article is it makes a strong and convincing argument about how uh, 
conceptions of masculinity uh, and the relationship of masculinity to the family, as well as the desire to conform to the masculine ideal, um, how these things played a role in male Holocaust perpetrators' behavior. Uh, and also, importantly, he, he addresses this in their verbal self-justifications. So I, I really um, found that very useful uh, and, you know, in terms of an intervention in thinking, again, about this question of how do ordinary men, or even not so ordinary men, because he addresses uh, also sort of top leaders of the genocide, but how it is that they become mass murderers and how it is that gender plays a role in that process. Haynes deals with perpetrators. Um, and Adam Jones's chapter deals largely with victims uh, and, and, and suggests that men are often targeted disproportionately, but, but it often goes unreported precisely because we assume that casualties and conflicts will be male. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about his idea of gendercide and, and what implications that has for everything from how we should report um, conflict, uh, casualties and conflicts to how we might um, try and identify possible future genocides? Yeah. Um, you know, I think part of it, you know, his decision to talk about this and talk about genocide, to use that as a concept, is, is what you were saying, to, to draw attention to, you yeah. know, how men are um, gender victims uh, and, and we don't even think of them in this way because of the function of that, you know, um, so he uses this concept of genocide to say that, you know, there's deliberate mass killing of persons of particular sex or gender. Um, and in, in his research, he's focusing on that particular killing of men. Um, and that this often happens, uh, as he observes and, and talks about, um, at the beginning of a genocide. Um, and he, he talks about this, uh, or it is, you know, a major part of how the genocide can be understood. Uh, he talks about genocide versus what he calls root and branch genocide, yeah. in which he says that's a situation where it's not gender selective, right? It's the deliberate mass killing of all sectors of the targeted population, regardless of gender and age and so on. Um, so one of the examples of genocide that he talks about, which I think is really compelling, is the murder of millions of men um, via the Congolese, you know, rubber terror that was mm-hmm. instituted mm-hmm. by Belgium King Leopold in the late 19th century. Um, and, you know, how research has shown just the, you know, overwhelming number of men who were killed. And we're talking, again, millions of men um, right, uh, that we can speak about a gendercide, gender-selective killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other piece that I think is important um, is, you know, what you were and that is this idea that it can be a signal that genocide is going to happen. That is, you know, if we see um, gender-selective killing in a situation of mass violence, um, that is often a sign that then the group, the perpetrators, will move beyond that, the men, and then they'll engage in the more indiscriminate root and branch killings that, that don't talk about. And if we think about this, you know, for example, in the Ottoman genocide of the Armenians, it was the male community leaders and elites. It was the men who had been fighting in the Ottoman armed forces who were pulled out. It was the men of fighting age. And, and Jones 
talks a lot about it. It's a significant battle age, right? Who are first murdered. And, and why is this? Well, it's, it's, it's very intentional to wipe out resistance, right? The leaders of the community who can maybe organize resistance. Um, and then after that, to go after, you know, all of the groups. And in this case, the Armenians, you know, we, we, we do see that happening. So we get at the first agenda side, the agenda side of killing of men, and then a move towards more wholesale destruction of the group. Um, Jones makes the case. Uh, I think it's convincing that genocide is a killing of one's power. Again, the goal is to you know, eliminate resistance. Um, and he wants us to pay attention to this, uh, both yeah. to, you know, sort of recognize how men are victims, too. And, and again, they're often weirdly discounted when people talk about the you know, sort of gender breakdown of, of genocide, um, the demographics of, you know, who's being killed and so on. Uh, but he wants people to take note too because he thinks it could be an indication of a move towards more widespread you know, violence. And so that if we're trying to assess situations of mass violence around the globe, um, if we pay attention to this, we might get information that's very valuable that could help us prevent more um, wholesale destruction. And, and in the same way Smith is trying to make us rethink how some things are obscured, at least a couple of your authors, authors remind us that um, women are sometimes perpetrators. And to um, perhaps see that it's happening and prevent the wholesale destruction of the group, or at least the effort to engage in the wholesale destruction of the group. It's a really useful intervention in my mind because it gives uh, the international community, it gives, you know, gives us tools to identify what's going on in a particular situation. One of the things you do with this, um, or that the, the authors in the section on perpetrators do, is is actually to uh, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, um, question the long-held assumption that women are are, are not perpetrators. Um, that seems to me an important observation. Yeah, it really is an important observation, and you know, I think that for too long, uh, the idea has been that you know women just don't. Uh, sort of aren't capable of, of participating as per perpetrators uh, in a genocide in the same way that men are, um, and that they're they're really just the victims. But um, it, it is important to note that that women have contributed, and more recently, I think, I mean, part of the you know sort of difference that I see is in in the 20th century, we see more and more women involved as perpetrators, both you know indirect, but also sometimes very actively involved. In the unfolding of genocide and elsewhere, um, I should say that you know this is uh, this new scholarship and, and pointing to this um, uh, is important, uh, but it, it follows on the heels of earlier scholarship uh, by these you know feminist scholars of the Holocaust who raised the question of uh, German women's complicity in the Nazi regime. Uh, but again, the new work is focusing on not just complicity, but you know really active participation. And I think it's really important to address this question, to examine, you know, genocidal cases for women's participation, uh, because it, it, not only because it happened, but because we need to break down this paradigm that women are victims and men are perpetrators if we really want to understand the complexity of genocides and the complexity of gender and genocides. And if we really want to understand the ways in which 
you know, women target other women and women target men and the ways in which, you know, um, again, women can be defenders of the nation or, you know, leaders of creating a more pure uh, region entity um, and how they, uh, they are involved in that process uh, as well as men. So there's another section on survivors, uh, and, and, and we don't have time to go through every essay, but, but maybe I could ask you to talk a little bit about, about these essays about survivors and, and, and identify some of the important insights that they offer. Yeah, you know, one chapter um, focuses on male survivors of sexual violence, and, and this, again, draws attention to uh, men's experiences as gendered subjects, but it, it discusses how males, uh, you know, men during certain genocides, in particular in the case of Bosnia in this essay, um, that their experiences of sexual violence were silenced. Um, and this was not just because of their own personal feelings of shame and not wanting to come forth and admit what happened to them, uh, but also because of the assumption that we were just speaking about that men are not victims, right, in genocides and victims of such violence in particular. Um, so that, that's one essay that I would point to in terms of, um, you know, some of what it's addressing that's important. I think that, you know, another chapter really shows, again, how the importance of culturally and historically specific understandings of, of gender and um, how that matters in terms of the aftermath of genocide. So it looks at Armenian post-genocidal and post-World War I rescue efforts to to track down and uh, emancipate uh, in, you know, the sort of view of many participating in these efforts uh, and reintegrate um, women and children into their own communities, the women and children who have been taken into Muslim households and orphanages during the genocide. Um, and this essay really shows how Armenian ideas about women and honor, even if uh, you know, leaders of Armenian communities were willing to abandon some of those ideas, how women themselves, the survivors um, who have been abducted and, you know, forced into marriages, so-called marriages or servitude, how they um, decided they didn't want to return to their Armenian communities because they didn't feel that they would be fully welcomed back. Um, they had internalized the shame so deeply. They felt that they were dishonored. They couldn't let go of that. Um, so I think that's a really interesting um, essay that looks at um, how gender influences the aftermath. Um, and there's another chapter on female survivors, Srebrenica, um, and it really explores the difficulties these women face um, in testifying at the ICTY and how um, their complex and nuanced and chaotic stories uh, were ignored in favor of simpler testimonies, which um, the author argues resulted in a kind of new violence against the survivors. So you pointed the, the, the concluding essay, and, and I feel bad about this because I, uh, Elisa and I have emailed back and forth a number of times about book reviews, but I've, I've never quite figured out how to pronounce her name. But I think it's Elisa von Jürgen Forge. Forgive me, Elisa, if I've got that wrong. Um, she addresses ways gendered forms of violence offer insights into ways we might identify ongoing genocides. Um, and you, you, you talked a little bit about this in the beginning. I, I guess I'd ask you to expand a little bit. Um, what is that essay trying, how does that essay offer us a, a, 
maybe new opportunities or new ways we can um, we can identify possible genocides as they begin. Yeah, she uh, argues that when scholars and members of the international community, you know, legal, and nonprofit, and organizations and other groups are trying to um, understand genocide and deal with its aftermath, or even to identify it, um, that, that we've made the mistake of focusing too much on mass murder. And even though the definition offered by the UN is, is more complicated and does talk about um, forms of violence other than mass murder, but she says we focus too much on mass murder in trying to make a determination of genocide. And that that's a mistake because if we really pay attention to the non-lethal forms of violence, and she argues particularly the gendered forms of violence, um, that can give us great insight in terms of identifying genocides. What she basically argues is that if groups are engaging in gendered violence and atrocities that appear to target a group's life force, and what she means by that, um, target a group's life force by destroying the physical integrity, um, the emotional and spiritual bonds of family members, that this should be a sign of genocidal intent and a sign that genocide is happening or that it is uh, about to happen, even greater violence is about to happen. And the reason she makes this argument is that she believes that ritualized atrocities that target the life force of a group um, by destroying the family, family and community bonds and ties to land and symbols of group cohesion and the social and biological reproduction of a group, she argues these are common to genocides despite the local, cultural, historically specific variations. So that... Mm -hmm. Instead of reading the crime of genocide in the numbers of bodies and massacres, which, she, again, she argues we do already, we do that too much, yeah. but genocide can be read from the bottom up through examples of gendered violence and life force atrocities. So in other words, if in monitoring violent conflicts, um, human rights organizations, government agencies, other groups, if they identify the existence of these types of crimes, this should serve as a red flag, right? That genocidal violence is unfolding or about to unfold. Um, and I think this is a really useful intervention because, again, despite the UN definition that says we, you know, it's not just about mass killing, we still have that tendency in the international community um, to be focusing on, on that in a determination of genocide. And she says, no, right? that's not... That's not mm -hmm not useful and it's mm -hmm. really important for trying to prevent genocide to note that this is not useful. We need to pay attention to these other forms of non-lethal violence. Well, it's a really wonderfully rich collection of essays and, it, and, and in some ways it leaves me with one basic question and that basic question is, is sounds simple and it maybe not. And that's where do we go from here? What, what, what are the next set of research questions to ask? How do, how do we integrate gender more broadly and effective into genocide studies? Yeah, um, so I think that in terms of integrating gender more broadly into genocide studies, I think one answer that I would give is that um, teachers of genocide studies uh, and scholars need to understand, appreciate how integral gender is to genocide and to really you know, appreciate that by incorporating the analysis of gender 
into their courses more broadly or into their edited collections or in their own uh, individual analyses. Mm -hmm. So, for example, right now we see some edited collections um, on genocide, terrific collections, um, and there'll be one chapter or maybe two that discuss um, maybe sexual violence or gender and genocide. Uh, And similarly, we can see in a lot of university college courses, maybe some attention to gender, maybe a week spent on the topic, uh, but or a week or two, I should say. And, and so, you know, this kind of attention is better than nothing in terms of scholarship, in terms of teaching, but it's not sufficient. And so I think that um, we need to see a change in the way that um, gender analysis um, is incorporated into the teaching and, and, and research that's happening. And to, again, understand that it's not just about sort of adding women in and looking at their experiences. It's about looking at women and men as gender subjects, and it's using gender as a framework for analysis. And that if we do that, it can complicate and enrich our understanding of the processes, effects, aftermath of genocide. Um, and so that's really essential. Is is. Is there something genocide studies can offer to gender studies? Yeah, I think what's interesting is that as much as um, gender studies, you know, the people who are participating in gender studies um, try to pay attention to the intersectionality of of gender, you know, social constructions of gender with Mm -hmm. constructions of ethnicity, nationality, race, religion, and sexuality, um, sometimes... uh, scholars might lose sight of that. And I think that genocide um, really just underscores how we need to pay attention to that intersectionality, to that cultural specificity, uh, because gender isn't static. Um, And we really can understand better how that is the case, how it can be, you know, destabilized and redefined um, when we look at uh, genocidal violence. It's a good reminder. Well, we're coming to the end of our time, uh, and and I often ask guests at the end um, to suggest a book or two or three that they're reading, perhaps movies that they've watched. Um, what basically this is a what should I and what should our listeners read over the weekend kind of question. So 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 what books can you suggest that were really meaningful to you? You know, I, I really became interested in gender and genocide when I read Olga Langell's uh, book, mm-hmm. a, a memoir about Auschwitz-Birkenau. It's called Five Chimneys, and um, I, I would suggest that people read that book. It's, it's old, it's a memoir, but it, it's really, uh, really terrific for trying to get at the gendering of genocide, and it also has a really interesting discussion of resistance. Um, so, uh, you know, Langell talks about for sterilization, gender violence in terms of medical experiments, uh, in terms of the camp admission process, in terms of um, surviving in the camp by being, you know, by, by trading uh, sex for food and so on and so forth. So it's a really interesting memoir. I would also suggest another older book called The Keys to My Neighbor's House, yeah. Seeking Justice in Bosnia and Rwanda. It's by Elizabeth Newfer. And um, I really, it's very accessible. So that's one thing that I like. It's really accessible to non-academics. And um, she interviewed victims and perpetrators 
of genocidal violence in, in Bosnia and Rwanda. And she really helps to, um, you know, cast a, or, or, you know, get a, a broader picture of what happened, but also to do so through the eyes of particular specific individuals that we get to know throughout the course of her various chapters. Um, so, for example, we get the story of Husan Nuhanovic, who was a Bosniak interpreter for UN forces in Srebrenica and has been a leading force in trying to uh, bring justice, um, you know, in terms of international reactions to the Bosnian violence and to what happened in Srebrenica. We get to know him pretty well and what happened to his family. We get to know the story of another character, JJ, a Tutsi woman in Rwanda, um, really well. And so I think it's it's a terrific book, again, for being able to offer the broad coverage, but also really personalize it and make it very accessible to non-academic uh, readers. Uh, for a more academic uh, suggestion, I would say that Yadina Bechirovic's book, mm-hmm. Genocide on the Drina River, which is a new book um, that just came out, that it's a really interesting book, and, and in part because of what... Uh, uh, what we were talking about earlier, that if you read genocide from the bottom up, um, and she does, she looks at what happened in eastern Bosnia more broadly, not just in Srebrenica, um, that you can clearly see the gendered forms of violence and other patterns of atrocity that show uh, genocidal intent and, and underscored the genocidal nature of what took place in Bosnia. And she argues that it's more than ethnic cleansing, right? that it really was genocide. And there's still some debate about that. Um, so it's an interesting intervention and very well argued. Yeah, I've, I've used Langell in class before. Um, and when I run down the kind of list of kind of the, the, the memoirs that form the canon of kind of Holocaust literature, that one doesn't show up. It's a wonderful book. I'm, I'm just wondering, do you have any sense of, of why it's not, it seems not to be assigned or read more often? Well, my, my first response is that usually male memoirs are assigned. Um, and yeah. there are so many, you know, good memoirs by men that that makes sense on on one level. But, um, you know, it's unfortunate because we really then uh, miss the opportunity to learn, again, as I've been arguing about gender and genocide, uh, which, you know, affords more complexity and nuances to thinking about the Holocaust. Um, and so Langill's book really offers that perspective and uh, we just don't get that discussion in, in most of, you know, in the male memoirs. So I, I think the real, you know, the answer is just that there is a canon, as you said, um, and it consists primarily of male memoirs. And um, I hope that that can change. I hope that as, you know, the, the study of gender and genocide um, grows and it grows in the field of Holocaust studies as well as elsewhere that um, teachers make different selections when they're assigning, you know, books to their students. We'll see. We'll see. We will see. So, so you started out doing Soviet history and you've now published a book on gender and genocide. Um, where are you focusing now on what, what's next? One of those two, are you striding off into yet a third unknown territory? <laughs> no. I'm, I'm returning to uh, looking at Soviet history in part because I had, uh, already started some projects before I undertook the volume on gender and genocide. Uh, so I'm going back to some of those projects. And one of the projects is looking at masculinity in the post-Stalin era um, and looking at how uh, 
in the 1950s and 60s, um, there was actually a real campaign to try to uh, transform men and make them um, into responsible family men uh, and, and men who would be, uh, you know, actively involved in the domestic sphere and in childcare and child raising. Um, so I'm finishing that up, and I also have another project on uh, sexual health and sexual education uh, in the post-Allen era, um, and some other things. But I, 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 I suspect that I will return to the question of gender and genocide at some point in the future. I don't think that I'm finished with this topic, but um, I'm going to either you know pursue gender and genocide more or focus on Soviet history. I I don't think I could handle a third uh, avenue of study at this point. That would be too much for me. So, so I think I'll just leave it at two avenues of study. As a division chair, I can recognize the wisdom in focusing your attention on getting something done that you can do. Yes. But thank you so much for being with us. Um, I look forward to reading your new stuff, and I hope that uh, when you finish your project, you'll come back on the New Books Network again, whether on this channel or another one. But thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you again for um, inviting me to be a part of this wonderful series. I really appreciate it. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Amy Randall, editor of Gender and Genocide in the 20th Century, A Comparative History. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I interview Andrew Wolfer, author of This Benevolent Experiment, Indigenous Boarding Schools, Genocide and Redress in Canada and the United States. Until then, thanks for the download, and have a great month.